Well, this morning we are launching our summer series in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to be looking at the servant section, which goes from chapter 40 to 55. Now, Isaiah, just to give you a little bit of background on him, he was a contemporary of Hosea and Micah. He lived in Jerusalem. Uh, We find that he seems to be from a royal family, and even Isaiah itself shows him uh, to be a dad. He has kids. He has a wife. Uh, And in addition to that, tradition holds that this prophet was eventually sawn in two during the reign of Manasseh. Now, Isaiah, the book itself, is a collection of individual prophetic oracles that are mostly Uh, not in chronological order, though there's some rough chronological order at places, but they're actually more combined thematically. So uh, sometimes you're not going to find them just coming one after the other like they would occur in history, but instead uh, they follow themes. And the major themes that we find in these books happen in the three main sections. There's a section on the king, which we've gone through before, a section on the servant, and then finally a section at the end on a conqueror. Now, just to bring you up to speed on the context of Isaiah, uh, because we've been in the New Testament, you might have forgotten, like, what's happening in the Old Testament again. Uh, But what's going on is is we find that shortly after Solomon died, there was a split in Israel between the north, northern kingdom of Israel, and and the south, the southern kingdom of Jerusalem, or or, or rather Judah. And, And so those nations after that were actually fighting. In fact, as we read through Isaiah, we'll find some of those conflicts that these people experienced. And Isaiah, in his storied history, saw a a number of things, a number of critical events in the life of the history of the people of God. In fact, uh, you'll remember that he saw Israel carried off into exile by Assyria during the reign of King Ahaz in about 722 B.C. 1 Kings 16.2 tells us a little bit about King Ahaz, who was king of Judah, as he was watching Israel be carried off. And we're told there that Ahaz was a wicked king in 1 Kings 6 2, who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, even burning his own son as an offering like the nations. Now, here's the deal. Israel's kings are mostly just bad dudes. But when you look at Judah, they often had good kings, but there were some bad kings, and Ahaz was one of the bad kings. In fact, as you read through the history, what you'll find is is that often the kings of Judah, it said that they actually did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But, in other words, there was this good trajectory, but there was always these experiences that just reminded you that they were not that king like David, who would be greater than David, who would bring about the ultimate salvation and deliverance of the people of God. They would let you think almost that this is the guy, but, but it's not. And Hezekiah was probably the chief example of these kings. He was a king who did what was eyes in the Lord. In fact, as you read about his reign, he was one of the greatest kings of Judah, and his reign was marked by wealth and injustice. He led the nation in sweeping reforms religiously and trusted God as Assyria stood at the gates of Judah taunting this king 
and his God. I mean, if you go and you read about it in Isaiah, the king is not just saying, don't trust King Hezekiah. I'm about to take you out. He says, the voice that he is pointing you to, the voice of the Lord, I've heard this a lot. I show up and people warn me about their gods, and then I kill them and I mock their gods. And I'm doing that here. Yet Hezekiah prayed and trusted God, and God delivered them miraculously from this people. But when you get to Isaiah chapters 38 to 39, they end highlighting that Hezekiah was not the greater king that God promised back in Isaiah 9. Now, in chapter 38, we find that when God warned Hezekiah of death, he responded, I do not want to die. Now, that is a naturally worldly response, a very self-centered response for a king. God gave him 15 more years, and the king of Babylon came to visit during this time, this, this time that God gave him. And Hezekiah showed off his treasury to Babylon, this king, bragging and boasting, maybe hoping to form a kind of alliance that said, look at our power, we'd be a great team together. So in Isaiah 39.8, Isaiah told Hezekiah that in the future, Babylon would take all of his possessions and even some of his sons into exile. And, and how, much, how much you think that you would respond if God had told you that, that he would take your sons into exile? Well, his, his response is fascinating. We find that this self-centered king was more concerned about himself than his, king, uh, than his kids. He says, it says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Good that I'm going to take your kids off in the future? For, he thought, and here's the, here's the money, there will be peace and security in my days. See, King Hezekiah's chill because he's dodged the duress that his people will face. He is not concerned about what they will face. He is concerned about his own safety and his own worldly comfort. Now, in one sense, chapters 1 through 39 are really just a long prologue demonstrating how even the greatest king of Judah, Hezekiah, was at heart a self-centered king more concerned with his own peace and security than his very own children, much less his citizens. He desired worldly comforts for himself rather than seeking the good of his people. He was not the king greater than David who would rescue his people. And as soon as he announces God announces the devastating consequences of Judah's sins, what we find is, is that God is, is far different than this king. See, God, as soon as he tells him in chapter 39 that devastation is coming, and chapter 40, his verse words in verse 1 are, comfort, comfort my people. Now, our big idea this morning is this. It's that if, is that God. He brings comfort to His people with gentleness and strength. God brings comfort to His people with gentleness and strength. And we'll see this in a number of ways, but first, notice in verses 1 to 2, we'll find that God is the God of all comfort for His people. Now, these first two verses, they're really kind of like an introduction. Now, catch how God's words of comfort outrun God's declaration of disaster as He's directing someone to console His people. Verses 1 to 2, he, he says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, 
that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now, throughout this section, it's not clear who God is commanding to speak these words of comfort. But I think what that actually does, rhetorically, is help the readers to understand that Isaiah is actually emphasizing that the ultimate origin of these words that we just read is God himself. He's the speaker. Well, who spoke for him? It does not matter. These are from God. This is words. I don't know how many of you have ever gotten a letter in the mail and before you opened it said, hey, honey, do you know who, who brought it and delivered it? I don't know if I can open and read it if I don't know who the mailman was. It doesn't matter who the mailman was. It matters who sent the mail. And it's God himself who has delivered good news to his people. And God has sent this messenger with an emphatic command to comfort his distressed people who were living at this point in exile. Now, you can't see it in the English, but the actual form of the word for comfort is in an intensified form, and then the word is doubled. So God sends deep comfort for wearied souls. God's not sending comfort to everyone, though. Notice that he specifies my people. My people, this is covenantal language. Not every person is God's person in this way. This is the same language that God used when He was speaking to Israel in Exodus 6-7, promising that after He delivered them, they would know that I will be your God and you will be my people. Here's what's startling. Isaiah wants us to see this comfort as a response to the duress that was promised just back in chapter 39 and that was caused because of the sins of the king and his people. They were idolatrous. They were unjust. They were religiously, ritually active, but did not have a heart for God. See, God's people broke God's law and God's covenant, and yet we find these encouraging words in this text. God still sends a messenger of comfort, even though they have been disobedient. And he says to them, this messenger, I want you to speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Now, tenderly, this not only speaks to a a kind of gentleness of speech, it is that, but it's an attempt by this speaker to persuade the hearts of the people of Jerusalem about the goodness and the nature of their God. Jerusalem is that city where God dwelt with His people before they would be exiled to Babylon. They are no longer in Jerusalem during the exile. In Jerusalem, it might have ceased to be a political reality in the eyes of the world, but God still remembers His covenant people, which is the faithful remnant that he spoke of in Isaiah 20, 21, or 10, 21. He saved a people for himself. And he has not forgotten them even if the world has. In fact, those three statements in verse 2 outline the comfort that he was going to give. Notice, uh, it was that her warfare, or time of hard labor, is over. That her iniquity is pardoned. Uh, that, that phrase is a, a beautiful phrase that points us to the way that priests would offer sacrifices before God to satisfy the consequences of their sins, making them right with God. And also that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
That's a complicated phrase. Some, some people look at that and say what that means is, is that God, he actually visited them with punishment that was twice what their sins deserved when they were in exile. But in context, I, I see this as a very comforting text. I think that what it's actually speaking of is more of a picture of a pardon of God's grace. In other words, that God has paid more than enough to cover the sins of his people by his own hand. This is a declaration of God's grace pardon for his people. And even as God's people are suffering, and catch this, suffering the just consequences of their sins, God is flying to his people with comfort in his wings. I'm curious this morning, how do you imagine God's posture towards you? For those of you who are in Christ, when you come before God, do you think that God accepts you more on a good day where you're like, God, I checked the boxes today, read the Bible, shared Christ. Today is a day of all days that you love me. And do you sometimes cower before going to the Lord in prayer because you know that you've sinned before God? And you imagine that like, if I don't pray right now, maybe God's not going to see those sins that I'm, I'm struggling with. And if I did go, he might take that sin away that I love so much. Not sure I'm ready for that. Or maybe you believe that God would turn his head from you because of the sins that you've committed. Now, here in this text, we see a, a beautiful picture of the posture of God towards his people in Christ. His posture is one of running to comfort needy sinners trapped in the consequences of their rebellion. And he says, I want you to have hope in me, be comforted. This is a glorious text giving us a picture of the heart of God. He is perfectly just and a God who tenderly comforts His people. I'm wondering this morning if you're one of those people that just needs comfort from God. Maybe you're that person who watches the news maybe too much and you find yourself getting sadder and sadder and, and more and more you want to give up on life because you're like, what's the point this world? It looks like a dumpster fire. Maybe you're discouraged, not because of what you found on the news. Maybe it's because this morning you're here and you feel defeated by sin. There is some sin that you feel like has, is prevailing over you, that you are powerless against it, that it is a greater power that is outside of you than that which is inside of you, even though God promises greater is he that is in you than that which is outside of you. I remember a season in my young Christian life where I prayed all around my sinful desires, but I never brought them directly to God. It was the funniest thing. It was like I could hide my sins from God, put them in a box, and have really healthy relationship with God while just kind of keeping sin at bay. That's not the way that life with God works. But maybe that's you today. You're, you're needing comfort from God. Not just comfort in your sin, but comfort that lifts you out of it. Maybe you need to freshly be made aware of the provisions that have been made for you in Christ. Or maybe you're disappointed in life like Mitch Robbins. I don't know if you've seen City Slickers. Maybe some of you are too young for that. But do you remember that movie where Mitch Robbins, played by Billy Crystal, is talking? And he says, did you ever reach that point in your life where you say to yourself, this is the best I'm ever going to look, the best I'm ever going to feel, the best I'm ever going to do? And it ain't that great. 
I mean, what a beautiful turn of words to, to in a funny way, show that feeling of like, have I, have I really lived up to what my life should be? I mean, all those unmet dreams, those unachieved goals. I'm just disappointed. I, I feel worthless. I don't even know if I can be used by God. Let me ask you, what do you imagine God's posture is towards you, even in your sin and sorrow this morning? Our God, who is gentle and strong, runs to His people, even to comfort them and call them to repentance. And the same God who condemns of sin is a God who tenderly comforts those who are in Christ. The same word right here, we find not only that God extends this pardon of grace, we find that God also gives a voice of comfort in verses 3 to 11. Notice that in these verses, there are three voices that cry out in response to God's command. And again, none of them are identified because what's really important is this is God speaking. Uh, notice the first voice in verses 3 to 5. We find this human voice crying out in verse 3, and then we end with Yahweh Himself speaking. Here's what it says. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And even and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, at first blush, you might think that this message to exiles in Babylon meant that God would prepare a highway for His people to return from exile back to Jerusalem. Now, we see that image elsewhere in Isaiah, but I think something else is happening here. Here, the, the voice is crying out for God's people to prepare a highway for God Himself to arrive. God's people are preparing a straight road in the wilderness where there was no road. Where there is a place where they find mountains, they flatten them. Where there are valleys, they raise them up so that it is a smooth road for God to come. They don't want anything to slow down the arrival of God. Now, why is that? Well, verse 5 says it's because the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. There's a future coming revelation of the glory of God unlike anything they've seen before. Now, this is interesting. They're going to behold the glory of God. If you remember the way this book opens in Isaiah 6, Isaiah himself, who is a prophet from a royal line, who grew up in Jerusalem, is a guy who has a vision of God. And we find in Isaiah 6, God's glory descended and it filled the earth. And I, Isaiah sees and immediately cries out, what? Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah doesn't act like he is excited in a good way. He acts like he is terrified before the presence of God. See, I take it that Isaiah merely saw the train of the robe of God in Isaiah 6 and immediately was undone. It was in that moment when he saw God that he saw himself more clearly than he had ever seen himself before. We are going to see ourselves clearly one day in the presence of God. Those things that we think are good, they will disappear. 
Those things that we think are bad about ourselves, terrifying. See, God's glory represents God's character. And when we see God, we see what it is that we were made to be and what we are not. We were made to be in the image of God, and we have fallen. We are sinful. We are broken. So you would think that God showing up would be terrifying words, not necessarily comforting words. But this, this seems to speak of a future revealing of the glory of God that is universal in scope. Because it says, all flesh, all humans shall see it together. This looks beyond the return of Judah from exile to an eschatological or end times event where all people on earth will behold the glorious presence of God. And Jerusalem can count on it. That day is coming. God is coming. Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And God never writes checks with His mouth that His hands cannot cash. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I've had a lot of jobs. Um, we were recently at a, a staff get-together, and we were talking about all the jobs we'd had. We had forgotten jobs. But one job I was reminded of was I worked in a bank for a while. And every once in a while, we would have a general manager who would come who was over lots of banks And he would say, hey, I'm going to show up on this day. I can't tell you when, but I'm coming. And what was amazing was how everything in the bank changed when he was coming. All of a sudden, we all spoke in complete sentences. We weren't studying Hebrew for our classes in line as people were coming and looking for help. People who tended to be a little bit curmudgingly, became really kind and generous and had, like, personalities. Like, everything just sort of came to life. Of course, one, way that, one reason that happened was because we knew that someone in authority was showing up, someone with power was showing up, who could affect our livelihood. Well, I think there's a, a real sense in which Isaiah is kind of giving us an image of the fact that God is coming in His glory, and He is going to set things straight. And you need to be getting ready for that day. You need to be preparing the way of the Lord. Are you preparing the way of the Lord? Preparing the way for Jesus' return? Then it was the first coming of Christ. Of course, we're still looking for the second coming. But are we preparing the way of the Lord? See, preparing the way of the Lord here means living today in light of the last day. Jesus is coming. Here, we're told that God is coming in His glory. And the promise of the glorious future, this visible coming of God, He says, this should comfort you in your present afflictions and cause you to hope in God. This is going to be a good day for you. Why is it a good day? Well, because He's going to put your sins away, like He did with Isaiah. He's going to make atonement for them. And when that is done, when your sins are dealt with, there is nothing better than seeing God. Now, here's a question. If you believed that God could show up today, and if you were a Christian, you believed that. But if you experientially, you know what I'm talking about, not just theologically and academically, but actually lived like you believed that Jesus was coming back today, that God in His glory was going to show up today, what would you want to do to prepare for His coming? Are there sins in your life that you would feel a little bit more empowered to put to death? Do you think that you would 
repent to turn from those sins better if you had a stronger sense that Jesus could arrive today? Would you pray more? Would you seek to reconcile that broken relationship with a little bit more fervor? Would you tell your non-Christian family or friends that they need to get ready for God with a new intensity? Maybe you were waiting for the right moment and you realized we're not promised another moment. Would you evangelize with more urgency? Would you worry about some things less? Money, your job, fantasy football, your 401k. Or maybe you haven't put your faith in Christ and you would put your faith in Christ today. You know, John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord, fulfilling these verses. Uh, these verses, along with those from Malachi 3.1, which promised a messenger of a covenant, and Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6, where we are told that that messenger would be like Elijah. Uh, we find in the New Testament, as Malachi said before, the, the guy here, not the prophet in the Bible, that John the Baptist was that guy. He preached the word in the wilderness. He prepared people for God's coming. And how did he do that? By calling them to what? Repent. You want to make the way straight? Turn from sin. Turn from living for those things that you love more than God. Turn from your idols. Turn from your affectionless religion. Turn from just showing up in church to loving God and His people. Turn from it. If you do those things, you are preparing. You are getting ready to behold the glory of God it being a good thing, not a terrifying thing. Of course, we know that he was the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. Jesus was, um, when he came, called Emmanuel in fulfillment of that promise from Isaiah 7. That name means God with us. Jesus was God with us, full of the glory of God. He displayed God's glory. In fact, in Hebrews 1.3, the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To see the glory of the Son is to see the glory of the Father. So we saw this in Christ, but we will see it even greater in Revelation 21 to 20, uh, 23 to 24. There is a future coming of the glory of God that I think that Jesus' coming is preparing us for. It's a day where Revelation 21, 23 to 24 says there is a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem that's coming, not the old one, a new one that descends from heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, and it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. That's the day that we're looking forward to. Are you living today as though that day could break into your reality right now? What would it change? point here is that God's glory has arrived with Jesus, and many did not see and believe. But God's glory is coming in an even more profound way in the future that no one will miss and no one will resist. Are you ready? But notice the second voice cries out in verses 6 to 8, saying, the greatest of humans cannot resist God's eternal word. Greatest of humans can't resist it. Now, I'll show you how we get there. Notice this voice that cries out beginning in verse 6. It says this, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are, at, are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. Now, the grass-like flesh emphasizes the transitory nature of all people before 
the sun-like glory of God arriving. Now, interestingly, you'll, you'll notice the grass and the flower, they both fade as the breath of the Lord blows on it. Now, the word for breath is actually the same word in the Hebrew for spirit. And it, and it, it basically gives this idea that the Spirit of God is blowing on those folks. This is really given the sense that humanity cannot stand in opposition to God. Now, God's Word comes with the powerful presence of God's Holy Spirit to accomplish God's purposes. The Bible is the Spirit's book, right? And so Isaiah 51.12 picks up on this theme of grass, and it uses it this way. It says, the enemy that opposes God is weak like grass that withers. See, God's Spirit delivered God's Word through God's prophets. And this is illustrated again in Isaiah 36.18. There's a practical story that comes in the life of Hezekiah that I think is in, he has in mind here as he's talking about this flower and, and this grass that's withering. Uh, there, you'll remember that Sennacherib of Assyria, he was the king of Assyria, and he is taunting Judah. And he says, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? I mean, this is like confidence at its peak, right? The fiercest, most powerful king of Judah's day taunted God's people and told them not to trust God's word, not to trust God's king. And so Hezekiah prayed in Isaiah 37. And God sent word through Isaiah for them not to be afraid. And we find that by the end of Isaiah 37, Sennacherim died at the hands of his very own sons. That's Sennacherib's story. That's his legacy. He mocked God and his sons killed him. The great kings of history are footnotes in the history of God's redemption of his people. The Word of our God, it will stand forever. There are a lot of competing voices in your life. Voices from television, from philosophers, from counselors, from sports moguls. I mean, everybody's telling us about ultimate truth. And the one word that we should be listening to every day, again and again, is that eternal Word of God that's been given to us in the Scriptures. That's the voice that we can trust. That is the, the good news that you can count on. But catch this. He's saying here that these, the voice of these great kings, the wise men of this age, they are like grass that withers before the breath of God. Now, the image to me here is much like that of a dandelion. Have you ever seen a dandelion? It's like a, a flower. Y'all looking at me like blank, like don't know what a dandelion is. I live in the desert. I can talk about sand. Um, dandelion and places that grow things, they are these weird little like powder puff looking ball flowers. And they have these little petals, lots of them that just shoot out. And the fun thing that you can do is like go and blow on them and the, the leaves just go flying. And in a moment, it goes from looking like this really cool flower to like just a stick. That's really the image I get here of great kings that tell you not to trust God, to trust in their might, not the might of our God. And every one of them throughout history, one after the other, whether it be Cyrus or Sennacherim, uh, whether it be any king that you have ever feared, 
the voice of the Lord has blown. And like that dandelion, it's turned from a beautiful, glorious flower into an ugly little stick, dead. And what happens when you blow on that? It goes bare in the same way the glory of great kings leaves them as they have mocked God. Great kings who mock God are like dandelions before God's mighty word. The comfort God gives does not promise to remove his people here from their present afflictions immediately. Did you notice that? He doesn't say that like, oh, like magically you're no longer suffering. No, the promise points them to a future eschatological revelation of God. And it's demanding that they trust God's word of future comfort amidst the present afflictions. Assyria's at the gates. They're screaming loud. Trust the voice of God. And even more, it calls them to trust God's spirit to bring about his promises. Additionally, it says that God's words are not like the transitory powers of our day. So here's something I would encourage you with. I noticed that it is really popular today in spirituality and in a lot of churches to sing lots of songs that are really grounded in metaphors, like breaking chains and different things. And the question is, what are those chains? Well, you just fill in the blank with what you think that chain is. Like you feel like somebody's keeping you down at work and not respecting you like you should. Stand up for yourself. Break that chain. We need to make sure that when we are singing songs and when we are looking at the Word of God and we are listening to voices, that we are coming back like the Bereans to God's Word and saying, is this what that meant? Is that the promise? Am I, am I laying my life on the altar of a promise of God that is sure and steady and eternal that will not fail? Or have I made something up in my mind? And then when it doesn't work out the way that I thought it should, do I think that God has failed me? God never fails. I need to go back to the promises. Presidents, dictators, philosophers, political pundits, psychologists, all of those of this age will fall like grass before the glorious presence of the Holy One of Israel when Jesus returns. That is when all the truth is super clear. So those who trust God's Word, they will stand with Him forever. That's the promise. We will stand with Christ. And we're going to bow a lot, but we will not fall like the grass of this world. Uh, notice third, behold, your God, He is gentle and strong. This is a beautiful picture of the nature of God. You, you remember the messenger of verses 1 to 2. He was sent to Jerusalem to comfort them. But now take note, the message goes out from Jerusalem. Now some have taken uh, this voice to be Zion, uh, the language could actually go either way in the original. It could just be another anonymous voice, which I think it is. We don't have to fight about that. But this seems to be an anonymous messenger coming out of Zion, which is the city of God. And look what this voice is said to say. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him, and his recompense. Uh, and behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom the gently, and gently lead those who are with the young. Now, this frenetic imagery displays the arrival of God the messenger, he is ascending a mountain so that everyone can hear as they declare, as they scream out the good news of the arrival of God. 
he, he, he's announcing it to them, or she. And the herald of good news here is much like the imagery of the evangel that we find in the New Testament. Evangel was a, a person who would have a message of victory, military victory, that they would run back to herald in a city so that they would know as they had been awaiting how the war turned out. Good news is we won. We're not slaves. We are actually freed. We are part of the victors. And they lift up their voices here, praising the arrival of this one who is victorious as he is coming. They lift up their voices with strength due to their confidence in God. Their voice is not weak or hindered by doubts. All things are clear. His glory is filling the earth. And did you catch the substance of the gospel? It is the arrival of God. I don't know what you hope in. I don't know what you're living for, but if you're not living for one day, coming face to face with your God, your maker, and him looking at you and you looking at him and beholding him and unimpeded access, then you're living a small life. That is what we were made for. We were made to worship in the presence of God forever. And they are, they are not like second-guessing anything on this day. And three times we see the language that they are using. Behold, behold, behold. Now, I don't use behold that much every day. I don't know about you. Like, wouldn't it be super weird if like Malachi got on stage and said, behold, Malachi. I mean, it would add a little power and force to it, but but we don't use behold all the time. It, it's really a word that just means look. And, and it's emphasizing the, the look and see. See what's happening. And what is it that's happening? Look, you're, you're God. He's right here before us. Now, I love what Alec Moyer says of this verse, verse 10. He says, the, the Lord's arm makes its debut here in chapters 40 to 55. <laughs> it's like, God has been present, but, oh, you haven't seen his arm yet. It's coming. And here it shows up. God is introducing his forearm. And in verse 10, this voice, she says again, Behold, Yahweh Elohim, he comes with might, and his arm rules for him. This is an image of God flexing massive biceps for the benefit of his people. It reminds me of Isaiah 53.1, where later we find God rolling up his sleeve to show his bicep, where it says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Are you seeing this? There's a lot of stuff that can happen with this. <laughs> That's what he's saying. The arm of God. This is the image of God, not mine, God's. Mine, I'm, I need to get to the gym, I know. But, but this massive flexing arm for the power of his people, he's saying all of this might and all of this strength is for my people for them. I'm for them. And God comes in might to rule with his might, flexing his strength for his people. And again, he says, third, behold. And notice his, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Now, reward and recompense, are, they're synonymous here, saying and describing the same thing. And they're picturing the Lord with the fruits of his victory before him and in his presence. He's got the fruit of victory. And what is that fruit of victory? Well, specifically the flock of his people, which he fought to save. That is his reward and his recompense before him. And don't miss this. God shows up in strength. But as he's looking on this reward, he treats them gently and tenderly. Verse 11. Verse 11, notice. 
he appears as a shepherd. Now, shepherds were a common image for, for kings. They were a metaphor for kings, the way that they would protect, provide for, and care for their people. We know in Ezekiel 34 that the, the shepherds were bad shepherds, and they were highlighted because they beat and eat sheep rather than tending to and, and caring for them. And God arrives here, though, as the good shepherd who tends to the, the general needs of the sheep. He gathers each sheep individually in his arm. Not arms, but his arm. And notice that he will carry them in his bosom, close to his heart. He loves his sheep. He has affection for them. And he's mindful of those sheep with young ones. He notices, oh, you have children, and I understand like their concerns with children, and I wanna, I'm paying attention to that too. God is strong with that bicep, but he's also general. The same arm that's used to, to rule over his people and to deliver them is the arm that gently carries them close to his heart. It's a beautiful picture of how God is both strong and gentle for his people. God's people are comforted both by God's strength for his people and his gentleness with his people. Of course, we know in John 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who has come to lay down his life for his sheep to comfort them. He is the one who will never let them go, who assures them of the future that is promised them. He is fully God in all of his glory and fully man in all of his humility. He is the one who came to comfort the people of God. Now, as we close, I wanted us just to think quickly about some applications about the nature of comfort. I want, I want just to think about the way that this idea is used in the New Testament. And one place to go for that, I think that's super helpful, is 2 Corinthians 1, 4-6. 2 Corinthians 1, uh, I'll say 3-6 to is probably better here. This is what Paul writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So let me just give you really quickly five encouragements for a Christian. First, from these verses we find that God is the only place to go to for comfort. I believe that so many of us, we find ourselves in pain and we start looking other places than God and through using the resources that God has given us to find us the comfort that we so desperately long for. We don't run to confession of our sins. We don't run to prayer. We don't run to the people of God seeking help. And when we do, and it doesn't work immediately or the way that we want, our hearts start to wander towards comforts of this world, worldly comforts that cannot satisfy the deep longings of our soul or what we as the people of God were made for. There is nothing in this world that embraces you like the arm of Jesus. Seek Him. Second, godly comfort is not the absence of affliction. As you look through these verses, it is clear Paul is writing out of affliction. 
Notice that he is comforting us in all our affliction in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4. So the comfort that he brings is not immediate sort of like, oh, he hit the eject button and now everything got easy and we're good. My circumstances change, I'm comfortable. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a kind of godly spiritual comfort that comes in the midst of afflictions. Third, God uses Christians to comfort other Christians. Did you notice that? Like you're going through significant sufferings in your life and it doesn't make sense. And you're like, what? How does this help me? I'm guessing there are tons of ways that it's helping you in the same way that there are tons of ways that it's helping me when I suffer that I don't even know about. And yet there is another sort of like, I just don't want to miss this. Your afflictions, let's just remember, they're not just about you. Did, did you catch that? I'm giving you comfort in your afflictions because you are going to minister to and be an ambassador of comfort for someone else who's having similar afflictions to you. I am preparing you to be a minister to others. And that's not just pastors. That's every Christian, every child of God. Fourth, godly comfort is a spiritual gift of those united by faith to Christ. This comfort is for those who have put their faith in Christ. We are sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings. If we have put our faith in Christ, this is us. If we have not, then the comfort that we long for is not ours until we meet the Father in the face of Jesus Christ, knowing that He died and put our sins away so that we might come before God and have right relationship with Him. And fifth, godly comfort looks to the future. Godly comfort, it is so future-bound. We are looking to what awaits us. Uh, You'll notice in Corinthians that we are told in 1 Corinthians 1 that we are patiently enduring the same sufferings. Patiently enduring for what? For what is to come. A future awaits us. The future where we behold face to face the glory of God. I want to end with one final story on comfort. And this is for you if you're not a Christian. Why don't you just consider the rich man in Luke 16? You'll remember that in Luke 16, there was a rich man who had good things all of his days, while Lazarus, this poor servant, he had bad days. And this rich man died. And he found himself burning in hell under judgment. And he cries out to Abraham for help. And Abraham responds. And in verse 25, Abraham says this, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but he is now comforted here, and you are in anguish. That word for comfort, same word for comfort that we find in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort in the arms of Abraham, comfort in the the bosom of Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus, then your future is secure. Comfort awaits. The best is yet to come. But if you have not, anguish awaits. So if you've not put your faith in Christ, don't leave without doing that today because there is comfort to be had in the arms of Jesus. Run there. Let's pray.